Every Friday, we have Do I Have a Case with Attorney Keith Figured of the Figured Law Group. Keith, thanks for joining the Rob O'Donnell Show today. My pleasure, Rob. Trying to slow these weeks down. These Fridays tend to <laughs> come around pretty quick. <laughs> well, a long weekend today, so you'll have at least one day to catch up, right? Right. <laughs> All right. So the first question for today, um, and I, I like this question. It's a good one. With an abundance of nonprofits on, that on face value appear to do good things and less and less expendable money to put towards these entities, how can one make sure that they are good stewards of their donations and that the majority of funds are going to their stated cause? I think it's first important for somebody to uh, understand what a Form 990 is. Um, so any organization that, uh, or with a tax-exempt status that takes in over $50,000 a year has to file a Form 990, um, which basically shows the annual report of how the nonprofit spends its money. Um, now, once the IRS makes the form public, you can find it in a number of ways um, by doing a search for the nonprofit's name. Um, there's different online searches, um, just like there's different government watchdogs. There's different, different charity watchdog sites. Um, one, I believe, is called ProPublica Nonprofit Explorer. They actually have a Form 990 lookup tool. So that being said, you also have to understand that uh, when these forms are filed, a lot of times it's not uh, very current, um, as it may be many months after the end of an organization's fiscal year. Um, so they may be back um, or, or uh, a little bit uh, stale by the time you're actually to review them. To get the most recent ones, you want to actually try to reach out to the charity. Um, they are uh, required to provide the form upon request. Um, However, I'm, as I'm sure you can imagine, there's some organizations that don't comply. Now, for purposes of determining if they are a good steward of the money, uh, when you get the Form 990, um, there's a number of things that you could look at, such as program spending, fundraising fees, and executive compensations, um, which are usually the primary ways that people assess a nonprofit. The program spending is obviously when a person donates to a um, uh, or donates to a nonprofit, they are donating for a specific program. So you want to see what monies have been apportioned or budgeted it for that program. That's uh, something that would be in part three of the Form 990. The professional fundraising, um, that is obviously something that's needed, but it can be a problem if the charity spends far more on professional fundraising than on the programs themselves. So again, that's something that can be seen um, in part one, uh, I believe line 16A of the form 990. And then executive compensation. Uh, nonprofits are required to disclose the name and salaries of the five highest paid employees, as well as other key staff and board members. Um, so you would want to go and look in there as well on that form. And then of course, you could look in the news and other websites to see um, if they are actually engaging in any um, of the specific programs. Like for one, uh, an example was when um, the Red Cross raised millions of dollars for Haiti, and I believe they only built like six houses. I mean, obviously there was an issue there. Um, but I think that would be the best way. And if, as I said, you had difficulty, you can probably go to one of those uh, uh, watchdog sites to help uh, at least guide you or, or provide additional uh, um, insight. 
Great advice, great advice. And people looking to do good things with their money, obviously they want to do their due diligence to make sure it's being used in the right way. So always great advice there. Uh, next question. I was in a minor fender bender, and I think this happens a lot more than we actually know. I was in a minor fender bender in a parking lot uh, where another vehicle bumped and scratched my vehicle. It was very little damage, and the driver said that they would take care of the repair costs, so we exchanged information. Uh, but as but has now ghosted me and is not returning calls. Right, so the issue here is, I believe, what's done at the time of the accident, because that can vary significantly in terms of what information is obtained, what information isn't obtained, were there pictures of the damage. Um, because I, the obvious issue is if a person th then becomes silent or non-cooperative, is how do you prove your case? You have the burden if you're filing a claim to prove that they caused the damages, and that can be a problem um, if you fail to take adequate or, or preserve adequate evidence at that time. The other problem is, is if you don't get the insurance information, typically when you recover on these cases, it's through the insurance, unless in these circumstances they want to offer to um, not go through insurance, which is an option. However, if you don't get that insurance information in the beginning, you don't have the option of submitting it later on if they become non-cooperative. And that's what I think is the most important to understand in this situation is if this happens, it's not a problem and if you and the other party agree to resolve this by not going through the insurance. However, you as the injured or harmed party or with the damage want to make sure you at least get a copy of the license and the insurance and basically you give them an opportunity and you could take it to a, uh, a dealer to get an estimate and you give them an opportunity to pay which would then satisfy obviously whatever damages are owed or if they go quiet now you at least have the person's insurance and you can uh, submit it to their insurance and have it uh, go through that way uh, but if you really don't take that step you're you're looking at um, having a file through the magistrate and even if you do file through the magistrate if insurance isn't involved now you're trying to collect on it chances are you're going to spend a lot more trying to collect on it than you would <laughs> yeah. um, then it'd be worth it uh, just in time, uh, like you said. So it's always <laughs> good to get, that yeah, to get that documentation that, that you needed to get. Make sure you get pictures of everything. Make sure you get the insurance. So if they say, hey, I'll take care of it, I'm going to pay for this, and they end up don't paying for it, you can just contact their insurance and say, hey, here's pictures. Here's the date it happened. They're time stamped and everything that happened there. Correct. Great. Uh, last question here. A few years ago, I had suffered a workman's compensation injury to my knee. I had surgery and rehabilitation and thought I was back to normal. But now, while in a new job years later, I realize my knee is limited and, the, and in pain for what was once normal usage. Are there any options for me now to be made whole? All right. So in this question, there's a lot of issues. There's because when you have a potential workers' compensation claim and you return to work, it goes into what's called a suspended status. Um, but there's a number of things that can go on in between there, such as what did they actually acknowledge in terms of the injury? Um, when was the last payment of compensation? There's all different time frames upon which you have to open up a claim uh, for a prior injury. The other issues you have here and without knowing is if they were treating, because what really is going to dictate whether this relates back to the old injury or is a new injury um, or 
what it's related to is likely going to be the records and, and the medical records specifically and the history provided to the doctor. For instance, in this part, particular situation, if the guy had a surgery years ago and there was something that came loose and a doctor, oh, this is clearly related to the prior surgery, the prior work injury, that may relate back. And if it's within the time frame, you would be able to reopen your claim. However, if there's records that indicate that with the new job, his knee was becoming symptomatic and over time it worsened, chances are a doctor is going to be more inclined to opine that the injury was aggravated or a new injury and thus the new employer's responsibility. So again, in a case like this, um, I think it's important to speak with an attorney right away that's well versed in this area so that they can review to see what if there's any evidence to substantiate or establish causation and if not, to make sure he's seeing a doctor so that they have what they need to proceed with filing a claim if they're able to establish one. And one other thing I guess I would say is they have to understand what workers comp is. Um, workers comp isn't necessarily something meant to make you whole, it's a remedial statute. So it's more or less to get you back to work in some capacity or an earning uh, capacity. Um, you have much less damages in workers comp than you do in a typical um, negligence claim or a motor vehicle accident claim, uh, such as like pain and suffering, loss of life pleasures. So the damages are actually really limited when it comes to workers comp, which is all the more reason why you want to make sure you protect yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. Great, in, great information there. I didn't even realize that. I thought the whole thing for workman's comp was to get you not only get you back, obviously, to work, but you know, to get you where, I mean, obviously, if you injure yourself in a certain way, but to make you whole as far as, uh, um, you know, everything is, is uh, well, so that's even information I didn't know there, Keith, so I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, if, if someone wants to get in touch with you personally or privately to talk about an issue that they may not want to call in or they may not want to put over the air, how do they do that? They can contact me directly, uh, my direct dial, 570-954-9299. My email is keith at figuredlaw.com, and then I can also get uh, contacted through my website at figuredlaw.com. And again, you can contact me at robert.odonnell, R-O-B-E-R-T dot O-D-O-N-N-E-L-L at odyssey.com. And you can email me the questions for Keith next week or the week after in the upcoming segments of Do I Have a Case. Keith, thanks for joining the Rob O'Donnell Show this week. My pleasure, Rob. You take care. Enjoy your weekend. You too. Have a good, have a good extended weekend, hopefully. <laughs> I will. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome back to the Rob O'Donnell Show here live at CPAC, National Harbor, Maryland, WILK News Radio. Um, I'm truly honored as, as we're moving him in, as we're moving him in now, uh, I'm truly honored to bring in my next guest, uh, Gordon Chang. Gordon Chang is the author of The Coming Collapse of China, uh, The Great U.S.-China Tech War, and the just-released China is Going to War, and a CPAC board member. Gordon, thanks for joining the Rob O'Donnell Show. Oh, well, thank you, Rob. It is so great to be here. Yeah, you were on last year with us. Uh, you know the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre area very well. You, you transverse it quite often. That's right. But um, Lydia, Lydia is my wife. Her parents live in Toronto. 
we live in Bedminster, New Jersey, and the way to get there is to go up and down 81. So, yeah, we pass by the exit for the Joe R. Biden Expressway. <laughs> we laugh every time because we know that in a year or so, they're going to be so embarrassed that they got to rename it and take down the signs. Hopefully, hopefully. Uh, we, 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 we <laughs> a lot of people in northeast Pennsylvania hope the same thing. There has been talk about it, but we'll see what happens. But as this administration spins further and further down. Oh, my gosh. I mean, this is an administration that has took a peaceful world from Trump and has turned it into chaos. And what we're facing now is, I think, the most dangerous moment in history. Now, a lot of people will say, oh, it was the Cuban Missile Crisis of 62 or the Checkpoint Charlie Crisis of the year before. But no, we know from the archives, Rob, that neither Kennedy nor Khrushchev were willing to use their nukes. We don't know that now about Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping. And so really we're facing two adversaries who think that they can bluff with their nuclear weapons. And that is exceedingly dangerous. And we're seeing where China's making its aggressive moves off its shores now, off the areas around it, throughout the Pacific. But they're also watching U.S.'s response in things like Ukraine, in the Red Sea, in with 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 Israel and Hamas, uh, we're playing out to change their strategy in real time. Yeah, and and we're not doing a very good job of it too, especially because we have so much more power. You got to look at Ukraine and Israel as proxy wars. China greenlighted Russia's invasion of Ukraine, supported Russia's war effort from the very beginning. It's doing the same thing with Iran. Um, you know, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthi militias, they all have large quantities of Chinese weapons. China supports Iran with these increased elevated oil purchases. There's propaganda support. There's diplomatic support from Beijing. Um, and they're just the it, people, you know, Xi Jinping is looking at how we react to this. And although we have overwhelming power, they, I think, are heartened by our failure to keep the peace. There was a great summit here Wednesday night, the, the first international summit at CPAC. I, I was privileged to attend. You were one of the hosts or one of the main speakers at it at the roundtable discussion. You had members from South Korea. You had members from Japan. You had members from Israel, from Hungary. For, I think Mercy Schlapp said 20, more than 20 nations were there. But I, I want to key in more on South Korea, on Japan, on places you've worked hand-in-hand hand with, with, with the China Initiative and seeing what's going on there. Um, there's there's a there's real threats there, and something really stuck out at me from the the gentleman from South Korea, who he said, "We know now that Donald Trump getting elected stopped the war with North Korea and South Korea." Yes, that was Morse Tan, um, who in the Trump administration was actually an ambassador at large, and now he's at Liberty College. Um, Morse, you know, made the point, you know. We have um, what's kept the peace in the Korean Peninsula has been the South Korea-U.S. Mutual Defense Treaty. And conservatives in South Korea know that. But uh, oftentimes in South Korea, basically you have these progressive left-wing governments. They basically alternate between conservatives and progressives in the presidency. And the progressives are pro-North Korea. And that's really dangerous. Um, so we, Morse and I had a conversation about how conservatives can bolster the treaty. Because the treaty has kept the peace. And Trump kept the peace when he was there. Regardless of all the re rhetoric of him meeting the North Korean 
Yeah, I mean, leader. This is really interesting. I didn't like the outreach to Kim Jong Un, but I have to say that it was successful because really what we had was four years of peace. We had four years of peace in Ukraine. We had four years of peace in the Middle East. What do we have now? We have the world falling apart, and we have Kim Jong Un actually um, is perhaps thinking of invading South Korea. To me, that that is sort of like. I can't believe it, but two American scholars, Robert Carlin and Siegfried Hecker, wrote a uh, landmark article in January saying that Kim Jong Un has now made the strategic decision to go to war, and that has really divided Korea experts. But the point is, they very well may be right, and we very well may be at war in Korea, um, and and that is just in addition to the problems in Taiwan, Japan, the Philippines. It is just such a dangerous area right now. You look at that treaty that you speak of, decades long, that's that's kept peace in that region, and then you look at what they call sometimes an agreement with Taiwan. Uh, you know, our promise to Taiwan. Is there that same deterrence there, or no? Um, well, there hasn't been war across the Taiwan Strait, but deterrence is breaking down, and we see this really most clearly in the Philippines. We also have a mutual defense treaty with the Philippines. We have one with South Korea, Japan, Australia, Philippines. In the Philippines, China's been engaging in very belligerent activities. The State Department, under Biden, has issued warnings that the U.S. is prepared to use force against China to discharge our obligations under that mutual defense treaty. On October 22nd. President Biden, when he was welcoming the Australian Prime Minister of the White House, gave that same warning orally. But despite all of these warnings about we are prepared to go to war, the Chinese have just blown past those warnings, and they're continuing belligerent conduct. Which means, and I know this is a long way of getting to it, but it means that deterrence has broken down with regard to the Philippines. If it's broken down with regard to the Philippines, you can be sure it's broken down with regard to your question, Taiwan. And then you see the military aggression that's happening there against us, against our military, harassing of our P-8 surveillance planes, harassing of our E-2T Delta, unarmed Navy surveillance planes, uh, harassment, and and even not allowing United States Coast Guard vessels to port in some of the islands you talk about. Yeah, and, and what's happened is, um, and, and here's just a little bit of history. Um, on May 26 of uh, 2022, um, China um, engaged an Australian unarmed reconnaissance plane, and the Chinese did something for the first time in history. They fired flares, but they also released chaff, aluminum, based meant to confuse radar. That chaff got ingested into one of the engines of the Australian P-8 reconnaissance plane, and that plane, you know, fortunately was able to make it back to base. On May 20, I say that May 26, 2022, because on May 26, 2023, on the one-year anniversary, they go after one of our reconnaissance planes. The Chinese remember dates, and and stick to them, and they 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 use them purposefully. Yeah, a lot of people and, in America don't understand. To send that. a warning. And right now, we have to be concerned that China, you know, one of these accidents goes wrong. And, you know, China right now can't deal with the international community in a responsible manner because now only the most hostile answers are considered to be acceptable in Beijing. 
Now, it, it, it seems like it's old news here, but it's truly not because it's still at our forefront. The, the balloons that were over America from China. In Taiwan, they're releasing dozens upon dozens, hundreds across the whole island of Taiwan. What's the purpose other than obvious surveillance and you know yeah, getting well, as much intel as they, they can? Is it just harassment? It's harassment. It's intimidation. It's it's sort of like a, a claim of sovereignty that we can release these balloons, and that's over our own territory is the Chinese view. Um, but, you know, no Chinese regime has ever had indisputable sovereignty to Taiwan, not even Chiang Kai-shek, because the San Francisco Treaty, which ended most aspects of World War II, did not confer that sovereignty on the nationalist government. And the People's Republic, of course, has never exercised sovereignty over Taiwan. And, you know, to the extent that a Chinese dynasty ever controlled Taiwan, it was the Qing dynasty. The Chinese did not consider the Qings to be Chinese. So, you know, the reading of the People's Republic about Taiwan is like 100% wrong history. But it doesn't really matter because that's what Beijing is telling the Chinese people. And that is creating the conditions for war. Again, I'm speaking with Gordon Chang. He's one of the foremost experts on China, CPAC board member. Gordon, i got to take a short break. Can you stick with me for another five minutes? Absolutely. This is too much fun. It's great to have you. It's Rob O'Donnell here live at CPAC on WILK News Radio. We'll be back after the news with Nancy Kamen, who's in for Paul Michael. Welcome back to the Rob O'Donnell Show on WILK News Radio, live from CPAC. And I'm here with Gordon Chang. He's a CPAC board member, a China expert on China, foremost expert on China. And you could follow him at Gordon G. Chang on X. Uh, I'll be sharing some of his tweets. As a matter of fact, I did when he said he was going to be on the show. As we're sitting here talking, uh, you know, I was going to go on to the next segment about the Chinese nationals who are showing up here at our shore. But l- like clockwork, like China looks at anniversaries, we got breaking news that there is currently a balloon being surveilled over Colorado at 40,000 feet, believed to be another balloon launched by China. Yes, and Colorado is important because you have uh, U.S. Space Command um, has a lot of facilities there. Got Cheyenne Mountain, um, you know that whole string, that north-south string, starting at Cheyenne Mountain in the south, going almost all the way up to Denver. A series of uh, U.S. and Space Command bases. Um, it is a very important area for China to surveil, and so I'm not surprised it's in Colorado. I don't think it's over Aspen. I don't think it's over Grand Junction. It's probably very close to Cheyenne Mountain. And as we found out from the first balloon after they recovered some of the parts and stuff, it was sort of maneuverable where they did have it. It wasn't just launched into a jet stream and, and given it the, the rules of nature. It was able to be maneuvered. It was doing figure eights over some very sensitive sites. For instance, it was Maelstrom, F.E. Warren, and Minot Air Force bases where we have all of our Minuteman three intercontinental ballistic missiles. It was Omaha, that's Offutt Air Force Base, the home of U.S. Strategic Command, which controls all of America's nuclear weapons, and Whiteman Air Force Base, our only home to the B-1 bomber, B-2 bomber. As we're talking about what we've been talking about for the past 10 minutes, uh, what kind of message is China starting to trying to send with this? this I mean, is- they obviously know we could shoot it down. They obviously know we could recover it. We're going to get find out what it connected to, how it connected. I mean, and, and I'll tie it into we have just this this fiscal year alone, 22 Chinese nationals who came to show at our borders. That's not including the gotaways that maybe got in, paid a little extra to get in. Um, you know, are they getting information from it? Are they downloading real time? They have to be. Now, 
Um, first of all, your, your first question, what does this say? You know, the, the balloon January and February of last year was the big middle finger to the United States. This doing again is even worse. On just about the uh, one year anniversary, speaking of how dates matter. How dates matter. And remember, you know, the, the thing that really is distressing is not just the Chinese, but it's our own military. So in September of last year, just before he retired, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, gave an interview, um, and it was CBS News, I think, um, said that the balloon, he had a high degree of confidence that the Chinese balloon did not transmit any evidence back to China. Well, NBC News did a, a report a few months later which said, yeah, they definitely transmitted evidence back, um, and they've recovered, you know, how they did it. But, you know, what Milley also didn't say was that even if there were no transmissions back, um, which is not credible, um, the Chinese saw how we reacted to that balloon, and that was incredibly important because they could not have gotten that information any other way. So we have a U.S. military that is determined to cover up for the Chinese. Knowing how it crossed our nation and we waited till it came off the East Coast, how that happened is mind boggles everyone. Now that we know what it collected, how it did figure eights over important, how do they not take this down? They, they, now it's public that, that we know it's there. They've probably known for hours that it was there. They had to know for hours. Colorado, by the way, is not a coastal state. It's one-third of the way through the continental United States. They had to pick that up thousands of miles off of um, our coast. So really what we have right now is a military that again covered it up. Remember, we did not know about the January and February balloon until some guy in, was it uh, Montana? Montana. <laughs> looked up and said, what the hell is that? Took photographs of it, put it into the local newspaper, then the national media picked it up. This is a military that is determined not to tell the United States, what uh, the American people, what's going on. Knowing everything we know with the first balloon, is, our, is this administration negligence if they do not take it out immediately now? Well, I hope it's just negligent, but I, you know, it it's, could be worse. Because, you know, the first time was bad enough. The second time, there's no excuses for this. And it's the timing. You know, here we are just talking about this, and here's China, a big F you again to the American government, the American people, this administration. And here's a Biden administration that just sent dozens of officials to China to play nice. Right. You know, and, and this just shows, you know, we were talking in the first segment about deterrence breaking down. This is another example of how deterrence is failing, that they would send this balloon over our country after all that happened last year. You know, I hope to God that this is not a Chinese balloon, but nobody else sends these balloons out. Yeah, and let's, let's for full disclosure, we don't know who owns this balloon right now. It's suspected it has the same traits as the balloon it, from China. It looks just like the first one. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, yeah, it does. Uh, again, I'm speaking with Gordon Chang, a good friend of the show, a good friend of mine. Uh, you can follow him at Gordon G. Chang on Twitter, on X, now X. Uh, Gordon, how else can people follow your work or see your writings or such like that? I archive all my articles for free on my website, which is www.gordonchang.com. Sounds good. Gordon, always a pleasure to have you on the show. 
Uh, next time you're you're traversing up the 81, you well, don't you don't have to get off the Biden Expressway. We're on a different exit, the Pitson exit. But you're I would love to have you in the studio, you oh, and Lydia in the studio to talk. We'd love to be there, Rob. So thank you so much. Thank you, Gordon. Again, it's Gordon Chang, expert on China, and to have this kind of uh, well breaking news for us. I, we were a little behind. I know some text messages said that was there, so it's probably hit the news an hour or two ago, but. We've been busy doing uh, interviews and doing the work, but for this to come out now as we're talking specifically about this just shows the very real threat China is, right? Yes, absolutely. It is. Gordon, thanks for joining us. We'll be back with the Rob O'Donnell Show in just a minute. Welcome back to the Rob O'Donnell Show here on WILK News Radio. Let me tell you a little bit about BudgetBlinds.com. Listen, you go to BudgetBlinds.com, you're going to get in touch with Tom or Rick, owners of the local Budget Blinds locations here, cover all of Northeast Pennsylvania, leader in custom window treatments. They cover the blinds, shades, shutters, drapes, 90% more options than your big box stores. Budget Blinds is proud to offer the best warranty program in the industry, including their no-questions-asked guarantee. Where do you get that? which means you're going to save money. You're also taking advantage of their volume pricing. 30 years of style and expert service, budgetblinds.com, free in-house or virtual consultation. Check them out. You will not be disappointed, budgetblinds.com. I'm honored to bring in my next guest. I heard him speak on, uh, on Wednesday at the first international summit here at CPAC. Um, Dean Morris Tan of Liberty University, Dean of Liberty University, former global ambassador at large in the Trump administration. Uh, first of all, explain to the listeners what a global ambassador at large in the Trump administration is. Yeah, so, um, there are three different types of ambassadorships. One is a country ambassadorship. Secondly, it's a, a international organization one like the UN. Uh, but the least common type is the ambassador at large. What that means is you're applying a certain uh, area across the world and leading the United States efforts and policy along those lines. And so in my instance, it was global criminal justice, which is dealing with mass atrocity crimes, genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. So obviously you've covered South Korea. You've covered uh, the issues with North and South Korea, the atrocities that have gone on there. You would, if you were still in that role today, you would be covering Hamas and Israel, uh, mass atrocities there, uh, what's going on. And what we're seeing in the suppression in the Pacific with the China and Taiwan and, and such like that. Yes. In fact, uh, on January 19, 2021, what has been called the greatest human rights achievement for the Trump administration was the mass atrocity determination for genocide and crimes against humanity against the Chinese Communist Party for what they were doing in Xinjiang province against Uyghurs and other Turkic minorities. And so we were able to get that across the finish line just before the uh, Trump administration finished the last time around. And you're also a dean at Liberty University. I, I visited Liberty University. My son was recruited by Liberty University. Great campus down there, great atmosphere. How has Liberty University, and I, I know how, it's a silly question, but a lot of listeners who've never been there might not know. How have they been different than, let's say, the Harvards, the, yeah. the Princetons, the South Car- uh, Southern Cal, and, yeah. and such like that? How, how have they got that mainstay, mainstay of uh, raising great young adults? Yeah, Liberty is a Christian conservative university, and our motto is raising up champions for Christ. And so this is something that is rare in the academic world. You know, all these other universities that you mentioned used to be Christian universities as well, historically. And uh, they've lost that. Uh, But that's what Liberty University stands for. 
and it is a rarity um, in higher academia uh, nowadays to have a Christian conservative university. A great area, Lynchburg, Virginia. It's it's a, if I, I highly recommend if no one's ever been there, if you have a child that's growing up that will be college age or soon to be college age, you want to go on a visit to Liberty University. You want to look at what they have to offer. It's just a phenomenal atmosphere. Great campus, great staff there. So I highly recommend taking a visit to your school. And your school is so welcoming. I, I have never been greeted so much walking around there. And this I'm talking, this was 20... 13, 2012, um, almost every student I walk by, hey, hello, sir, how are you? Have a great day. You know, it's just a difference that makes a difference. Yes, indeed. Uh, I've sent my own daughter there, and she's in her second semester there, and she loves it. Uh, that's a direct quote from her, and she was not paid anything to say that, but she is loving it, um, and it's having a great experience socially, in terms of the fellowship, in terms of the array of opportunities that uh, Liberty University has. It has over 700 programs, and it has uh, over 15,000 residential students and over around 120,000 online students. And so it's a big endeavor, beautiful campus with the buildings, as you were mentioning. And yes, I would welcome your listeners to check it out. Sounds great. The Wednesday Summit. The International Summit. What was your number one takeaway from having more than 20 nations there? That roundtable discussion um, that was just unbelievable. You had to be, you have to be part of it to to understand what it really was. Yeah. So I think there are universal truths and universal core morality that is good for all cultures and all societies and all governments everywhere. And so as the conservative movement is spreading more and more around the world, uh, you see these sorts of commonalities that are there. Because what is worth conserving and preserving are those high ideals and values and the things that can be shared by all people everywhere. That is something that came out and stuck out to me in the midst of that uh, interaction. And how so many nations, Japan, Australia, Britain, um, Hungary, yes. are all dealing with the same push to force this progressive change, to yes. force yes. conservatives to go underground, to, to not live the lives the way they choose to live their lives, raise their children the way they choose to raise their children. No, that's right. Uh, and there are those challenges and struggles, sometimes even more pronounced than it is here in the United States along those lines. And so you're exactly right that there are these sorts of struggles going on in various places around the world and banding together at a place like CPAC and also for there to be CPAC spreading to other countries around the world is really an exciting thing. Now there's a, I'm not sure the title, Pacific CPAC that's taking place in Hawaii in the future, mm. right? When, when is that? Uh, well, so there is a conference in March, I think this is what you're referring yeah. to, and it's dealing with the North Korean uh, security crisis and the cooperation of the United States and South Korea and Japan along those lines. And the KCPAC, the Korean CPAC, is uh, behind this and putting this together. And so um, there's a philanthropist by the name of Annie Chan who really sponsors a lot of these things. And it should be a great conference in March. 
and you'll have a lot of pundits writing that never came here, never saw what happens here, talking about how conservatives aren't inclusive, how we're not reaching out, how they, these are very universal issues that we're facing. And yes. if you sat during that summit, yes. you would see it and hear That's it firsthand. Right. You, had, right. you, know, you had the Secretary of Security for Argentina there. You had the Dominican yes. Republic there. Yes. You, you, you couldn't have been more world represented in that room if you, tr if you tried to. It was an impressive gathering and one that really showed the value of conservative engagement in all these different countries uh, around the world and many regions represented. No doubt. It does. I'm speaking to Dean Morris Tan of Liberty University, former global ambassador to at large in the Trump administration. Um, Dean Tan, I'm so proud to have met you. I'm so proud to have you on the Rob O'Donnell Show. Thank you for joining us and give us your insight. Real pleasure to be on with you, and uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you. It's Rob O'Donnell here live at CPAC. We'll be back to close out the show in just a minute. WILK-FMHD 1 of Oka. WILK-AM Wilkes-Barre. WAAF-AM Scranton. Northeast PA's News Radio. WILK. Always live on the free Odyssey app.